In the spring of 1990, my father was in kind of the final rounds of the fight against leukemia that he had been waging for a number of years. And we got a phone call. He was at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, and my brothers and I got a phone call in Texas that he was nearing the end of this fight. And so we went to see him kind of one last time as he was in the hospital there in Minnesota. And it's a strange phenomenon to describe to you, but, you know, after we had been through our parents' divorce and all of the, the funk and the junk that that created in our family and some of the awkwardness and the, the hard times that it created, this last few days of my dad's life was one of the most amazing times that we have ever had, had ever had. We got up to Minnesota and every morning my brothers and I would leave the Holiday Inn where we were staying and we'd go to my dad's hospital room and even though he couldn't really respond or participate in the conversation, we had an amazing time. We would gather around his bedside and tell stories and laugh and make fun of each other. This was just kind of our, it was like a natural kind of thing that we had been together for all those many years. And it was an amazing, amazing time that I wouldn't trade for anything else in the world. An amazing time of peace, an amazing time of laughter and joy. Like I said, it was really, really very special. But there was one moment during our visit with our dad that I'll never, ever forget. One of the doctors who was attending to him came into his room one day, and she said, I'd like to visit with you and your brothers a little later on if we can. There's a conference room down the hall. I said, great, we'll meet you down there. Tell us what time. And she gathered us in this little conference room, and she said, I need to explain to you your dad's situation. And she went into some detail about what he was fighting medically and what was going on, and we listened and nodded. And then I'll never forget this. She kind of she gathered herself and got very, very serious, and she, goes, and she said, so this is what that means. Your dad could either get better, or he could get worse, or he could stay the same. Now, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation where you knew if you started laughing, you wouldn't be able to stop and it wouldn't be appropriate? You know, that nobody would understand. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Because I knew in that moment I could not make eye contact with my brothers. The Richard genes have a really strong sarcasm gene in them. And I knew that my brothers were thinking the exact same thing that I was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Doc, slow down. So you're saying, based upon your 12 years of med school and all of your experience, that our dad could get better, he could get worse, or he could stay the same. How can we ever thank you for this insight, this medical wisdom that you're bringing to the table here? It was actually a really welcome relief in what turned out to be a very, very tough, tough week. But it was absolutely hysterical. And I thought about that as I was preparing and praying for today as a church family. As we launch this new series, You Do You. Because the fact of the matter is that God has brought us collectively as a church family, but also us individually, to a similar moment of crisis it's similar, but it's not identical. And I would suggest to you that our crisis point is every bit as significant as the medical crisis point my dad faced back in 1990. And I could even make an argument that it might even be more a matter of life and death. Because we're talking about a spiritual 
crisis. Over the next few weeks as we go into this series, you and I are going to confront a very real identity crisis, a crisis of who we are in God's eyes, who we are in God's purposes, the crisis of identity. And this is one of the most exciting things we have ever done as a church, that we've ever been a part of or gotten to go to God's Word and see how to answer that question. So right now, with passion and enthusiasm, I want you to look at the person sitting next to you and tell them, you do you. Okay, now, now here's the deal. I, I love you too much to lie to you, and that was terrible. So now what I'm going to ask you to do is turn to the other person and act like they were your first choice and tell them with passion and enthusiasm, you do you. That's what I'm talking about. Now, when we talk about identity, we're talking about who it is that God made us to be. And I want you to take out your program that you got when you came in and take some notes because we're going to go through some stuff today that though you may not use it right at lunch as soon as you walk out the door, I promise you between now and next Sunday when we gather together again, you will notice some of this discussion out in the wild, out on the rugged plains of reality. You will notice incredible examples of people who are living out their identity as well as a number of folks who have no fat clue who they are or who God created them to be. And so our job as a church, our job as the church, is to see what God says about who we are. And over the next few weeks, we're going to use the life of Moses as a template, as a filter through which we are going to run our own personal identity crisis through. Now, it's important that you understand an identity crisis is not necessarily a disaster. An identity crisis can actually be an, an incredible affirmation. To, to get at this, let me show you what the words identity and crisis both mean. First of all, identity. Identity, in its strictest sense, just means sameness. It is the same, we get the word identity from the same word that gives us identical. So when you strip away all of the circumstances, when you strip away all of the past, all of the challenges, all of the victories, it is that sameness that you were left with. You were born as you. That's really profound. You may want to write that down. You were, God knit you together in your mother's womb. And the Bible tells us in Psalm 139, that God knew us by name, personally, before he knit us together in our mother's womb. Before conception, God knew you. He knew that there would be a you. He knew that there would be a me. And so that is a really profound doctrinal theological statement that says so, so much about who we are, about the fact that we have a God-given identity, that that who we are is divinely given to us. And so there is a, there's a supernatural gift and blessing in that. There's also a supernatural responsibility in that to discover that identity, our soulness, and who we are in order to live it out. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, those of you who maybe grew up Presbyterian, you may be familiar with, you may have re re memorized it at some point. 
What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So when we begin to understand who God is, is when we begin to understand who we are. Moses is a phenomenal example of this. I want you to look in Exodus chapter number 3. Pull it up on your phone or maybe you've got one of those old-fashioned things called a book Bible. You could look in Exodus chapter 3. And as you're looking that up, I want to make sure that we remember we always go to the Bible not out of habit per se, but because we trust the Bible, because the Bible is reliable as God's word to show us who God is, how he operates, and then where we fit into that. And in the book of Exodus, and specifically Exodus and Numbers, we see the life of Moses written out, played out, and it's a fascinating story. Just a, just a brief overview of Moses' resume, his biographical sketch, even before we get to Exodus chapter 3. Moses was born into Egyptian slavery, a child of Israel. He was born, literally born a slave. And at that time, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful person on the planet, noticed that Israel, the nation of Israel, was growing in numbers exponentially. They, they kept reproducing. They kept multiplying, even under the yoke of slavery. And so Pharaoh said that all Israelite boys were to be killed at birth, that their midwives, who were delivering these Israelite boys, were to kill the boy babies. And Moses' mother protected her little boy Moses. Moses' mother took him and put him in a basket that she had made, a basket made out of reeds with, with pitch and tar in the bottom so it would float. And she floated him down the Nile River. But it wasn't just kind of like, good luck, Mo. It wasn't one of these kind of deals. She floated him down the Nile so strategically. She set her little boy in the basket and then kind of like pushed him down current to where a group of Egyptian women were bathing in the Nile River. And it just so happened that one of the women bathing in the Nile River that day just so happened to be the daughter of Pharaoh himself. And when she saw this little basket coming down the river, she did what any young woman would have done, and she went, <gasps> a baby. And she picked up Moses out of the basket and went running home to her father, Pharaoh. And she said, Daddy, Daddy, look what I found. Can we keep him? Now, we read that story and we think, what unbelievable luck. But I want you to think about what the odds are that this baby who would grow up to take Israel out of Egyptian slavery would just so happen to be discovered by the only person on the planet who could change Pharaoh's mind, his baby girl. That's the only one. Nobody else would have even suggested to keep an Israelite baby. But Pharaoh's daughter was the one who brought Moses home. So he was born into slavery. He was an orphan, though a strategic orphan. He was raised in royalty. He discovered and learned and grew up amongst the royal protocols of the palace, which later in his life would become so important. But we also know, just at the very beginning of Moses' life, he was a hothead. Have you ever known a hothead? Don't raise your hand or point to the person sitting next to you. Have you ever known a hothead? Moses was a hothead. Moses actually killed an Egyptian who was whipping an Israelite slave. 
buried him in the sand and hoped that no one would find out about it. But two Israelites had seen it happen. And when Moses came by one day to correct them for their work, they said, what are you going to do? Kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses, in the original Hebrew, looked at these two Israelites who confronted him, and he said this in the original Hebrew, Ruro. And he fled Egypt. He abandoned the palace and became a fugitive from justice. He settled in a distant country where he married, and the only person who would hire him was his father-in-law. And he was working his father-in-law's sheep and goats. He was a a herdsman. His father-in-law was Jethro. Jethro, that's a great name, isn't it? He wasn't tending the cement pond. He was tending Jethro's herds. Some of you are going to have to explain that to the younger members of the congregation later on at lunch. But it was there tending Jethro's herds that Moses came to the foundational identity crisis of his life in Exodus chapter number 3. In Exodus chapter number 3, Moses is tending his father-in-law's herds and and he notices there in the desert that one of the the little shrubs or, or bushes that grow there in the desert was actually on fire. And Moses kind of took a little closer look and he, and he thought, that's weird that the bush is burning, but it's, it's not being consumed. The fire just keeps coming. It just keeps coming out of the bush. And Moses being the educated man that he was went, hmm, I'll go check that out. And so he walked over to the burning bush, and when he approached the burning bush, Moses heard the voice of God. And God said, Moses, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. It was holy because God was there. And God was about to rock Moses' world. It was there at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 that God said to Moses that he would be the point man. He would be the appointed leader of Israel to literally walk four million people out of Egyptian slavery. God said, I have heard the cries of my people and I will deliver them and I will use you to deliver them Moses. And it was at that very moment that Moses asks the seminal question of his life. The seminal question that we take up today is we do, who do you? Look at what he said in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. I want you to read the highlighted words with me. They're highlighted on the screen behind me. Moses said to God, who am I? Let me say that again. I want you to read the highlighted words with me. All right? Wow, talk about just leaving a brother hanging. I'm going to go slowly. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? Now again, don't raise your hand. But I wonder if you've ever been in a classroom with a teacher or maybe you've had a boss at work, or maybe a coach on a team who had absolutely no clue who they were, but they were always trying too hard. They were always trying to assert their authority. They were always trying to make you follow the rules and follow directions. They were always over-asserting themselves. 
If you've ever seen a situation like that or been in a situation like that, let me just see a show of hands. Isn't that amazing? Let me tell you the, the crux of that person's problem. They never asked this question. They, they never asked God, who am I? They're, they're, they're operating out of a false sense of identity, out of a false sense of who they are, out of a false sense of why they're doing what they're doing. They may not even have considered it. But when you and I address this question, who am I? We begin to step into exactly what God created us for. We just finished a series of messages called Poker Face, and we talked about integrity for several weeks. And it's so important that we understand that our identity anchors our integrity. Our identity anchors our integrity. When we understand who we are, then we can operate out of a sense of freedom, out of a sense of fulfilling what God created us for. But if we never figure out who we are, then we can never be complete and whole as God created us to be. So we've got to understand, we've got to ask the same question that Moses asked. Who am I? Who am I? And the great news for you and for me like it is for Moses is that God doesn't just drop us here on the earth and go, good luck. Hope you get to figuring it out. Take care, right if you get work. But instead, God offers to be a part of our process of discovery. God brings himself to the table. As a matter of fact, look at what he says in verse 12 in Exodus chapter 3. God kind of sensing that Moses is starting to freak out a little bit. Who am I? God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Now here's what's phenomenal. At that moment, in Exodus chapter 3, the Bible goes to explicit detail to say that Moses was in the boondocks. He was out in the middle of nowhere. Specifically, in the original Hebrew, it says that Moses was on the backside of the desert. Now, I don't care about where you come from, but if you're on the backside of the desert, that is not a cush job. It's a tush job. I'm just kidding. I just made that up. But he was on the backside of the desert. But God says, Moses, when you step into who you are, who I created you to be, who I'm calling you to be, you will come back to this very place on the backside of the desert and worship. You see, what you and I worship will either confirm or confuse our identity. What you worship will either confirm or confuse your identity. And we're all created as worshiping beings. The Bible tells us that God created us and placed eternity in our hearts. That means that there is a sense within all of us that there's something beyond. There's something more than just me. Just, just me at the center of the universe. There's something greater and so our lives are built around what we put in that greater spot. What you worship will confirm or will confuse your identity. Now, we would never say, well, I'm going to worship my possessions. I'm, I'm going I'm to worship prestige 
or power. Or, you know what, I'm going to worship another person. If I could just find the right Mr. Right. Or we would never say, how about this? Some people worship parenting. They, they think that their whole value, their whole self-worth is wrapped up in how their children perform, how their children succeed, how their children thrive. Woe be unto the person who builds their identity around parenting. I mean, kids are great and a blessing from the Lord, but if I'm dependent on one of these little angels for my self-worth, <laughs> gives me a cold chill just thinking about it. How many of you have ever had a three-year-old throw a tantrum in Chick-fil-A or Target? You know what I'm talking about? You're just like, okay, how many of you, let me ask you another question. When they do that, how many of you have ever thought about turning and walking away? Now, I don't know whose child that is, but they need to get a grip on that one. Good luck. Now, of course, we don't do that because we love our children. And it's against the law. But we've thought about it. But what God is saying to Moses here is that our identity is to be bound up in worshiping him. The first thing he says when Moses says, who am I? God says, I'll be with you. You're not alone. I'll be with you and you will worship. You'll worship the one true God. You'll worship him. So that every part of your life is an expression of worship. How you interact with your kids. How you relate to your spouse. How you work. Every single quiz or test that you take in school is an opportunity to confirm your identity as you worship God through doing your best. Every single one. How we respond to tragedies and injustices and death in the streets of our nation is an opportunity to worship, is an opportunity to confirm our identity in God, the one who gave us our identity. This is what God says. You will worship me. What you worship confirms or confuses your identity. But I love the fact that the Bible goes to the trouble of telling us that Moses was still freaking out. Moses still was kind of like, I don't know if I want the job, God. He says this in verse 13 and 14. He says, Moses, Moses said to God, okay, well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, oh yeah, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, I understand as you and I read that in English in 2016, it sounds kind of funky and, 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 and obscure, but follow me on this because this is a critical piece of theology. Theology just means an understanding of God. Technically, it's the knowledge of God, but I, I like the understanding of God better because an understanding helps me to relate to him. It helps me to understand who he is and how to connect with him better than just the, the knowledge of God. Knowledge is good, but it only gets me so far. I, I, want, I, want, a, I want an understanding. I want, a, I want a wisdom that comes from God. So this is theology. When God says, I am, this is a critical crisis, turning point 
in God's relationship with Israel. Because prior to this, he had always been referred to as the God of, the God of Israel, the God of Joseph, the God of Jacob, the God who heals, the God who is almighty, God who, in the third person, removed, remote. But here he says, Moses, I am. I am has sent you. I am the one who always has been, always is, and always will be. I am the one who abides, the one who survives, the one who is always. That is the one. And you see, Moses, yes, he led Israel out of Egypt. Yes, he received the Ten Commandments from God directly. Yes, the Bible says he met with God face to face. But it begins in this exchange at the burning bush. It begins with Moses asking God, who am I? I wonder this morning if, if this may be a burning bush moment for you. An opportunity to ask of God, who am I? As you say, who I am. God, who is it you've created me to be? What is it you've called me to do? And in order to get at that, God, I'm going to plant my flag right here. God, I'm, gonna, I'm going to commit my life to following you and figuring out who I am from this moment forward. Because it's always a process. Not one of us has arrived. We are always in process. I did something recently that I haven't done very much in my life that, that I'm, I'm, I'm working on. I have to confess to you, I love red meat. Like, I, I love beef, especially. Do we have any beef lovers in the house? Let me just see. That's so good. That's a sign of a healthy church, spiritually. I, I, lo and I, I love chicken. I love fish. I'm going to have fish for lunch today. And, and you know, all that, I, I love it. I love it. But, but beef, beef feeds my soul. Uh, there's something, there's just something about it. And so, I decided recently that I was going to smoke a brisket because that's how God likes his brisket. And so I decided I was going to, and I haven't done a lot of this in my life. And those of you who have done it a lot, you know it's an art form. It takes years to get good at it. And so I'm, I'm working on the skill of smoking a brisket. But I discovered some important, important things about smoking a brisket. Number one, you got to start with the right cut. Because if you get one of those small briskets, five, six pounds, that has no fat on it and it's been trimmed out, throw it away. It, that thing is going to char to a briquette after you smoked it for a while. There's, there's, not enough, there's not enough stuff in there. But by the same token, if you don't trim some of the excess off of that brisket and get rid of some of that fat and some of the deckle and all those kind of things, if you don't get rid of it, you're going to have an absolutely just a grease pit of a piece of meat after you finish it. But it's also true that it takes a long time to smoke a brisket. If you do it right, if you do, a, if you do it right, it takes a long, 
long time. You have to get that fire up to exactly 248 degrees and keep it there for hour after hour after hour. You have to check the fire on a regular basis. Don't let it get too hot. Don't let it get too cold. You got to keep it a steady burn going to smoke a brisket. You see, smoking a brisket's a process. And, and I thought about that because discovering my identity is a process. Discovering your identity is a process. And by virtue of the fact that you are created by God for God, that means that you, right now, are the right cut. God didn't forget to put anything in. He didn't leave anything out. He didn't give you more than you need. He didn't give you less than you need. You are the right cut as is. And, and there are probably some parts of all of our lives that need to be trimmed. Some parts that, when we've gone through the process, will not be helpful in discovering or living out our identity. And so the trimming takes time. The cooking takes time. It's not fun always. But, everybody say but. But the result. When, when you finish a brisket that's got that perfect bark on it, that, that when, you, when you pick it up, I'm talking about the lean end, the flat, you pick up a piece and it just kind of falls apart in your hands. When you look at it and you go, I don't want to, to taint this. I don't, want to, I don't want to scar this with any kind of sauce. Ugh. You just go, that, that's, how, that's how God intended Adam and Eve to eat in the Garden of Eden before sin ever entered the world. It's the perfect picture of what God does as we discover our identity. As we step into that relationship with him, and ask of him, God, who am I? And immediately go to worship. And immediately go to, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to be, God? Because I trust you more than I trust myself. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And in this moment, as a church, we want to give you the opportunity to begin that relationship to step into the grace, the amazing grace of God and begin worshiping him, begin discovering your purpose, your identity in this world so that you can truly, in the time that you have left in this life, do you as God intended you to do you. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that relationship, we invite you right now just to pray right where you're sitting. Just silently talk to God. Just silently, in your own words, say something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. In exchange for your life, I give you mine. I confess my sin, holding nothing back, Jesus to claim your forgiveness. I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you rose again for me. And I will follow you from this moment forward with everything that I have.
Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed and your eyes closed for another moment. We bow our heads for the same reason that Moses took off his shoes. Because it's holy. Because God is here. Because God's working. And if you just prayed that prayer to step into that relationship with God, then we want to be a family of faith with you. Around you. And so I want to ask you, if you just prayed to commit your life to Christ, responding to his grace initiative, I want to ask you to take the program that you got when you came in right now. Just take that program and open it up. And on the connect card, just fill it out, your name and contact information, and then indicate there, I'm committed my life to Christ this week. There's a, there's a blank about halfway down. And before you leave today, I want you to, if you would, just tear that card off at the perforation and make the time for a brief personal connection. Don't stay anonymous, but personally, just hand it to one of our ushers who wear those cool blue LHC shirts or stop at the blue awning out underneath the front porch as you walk out and just quickly but, but definitively hand that card to one of them and just say, hey, today was my day. And that allows us to, to come alongside and help you grow in that relationship to help any way that we can. And then second of all, as we remain with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to just ask you, if that's your prayer and you're filling out that card, would you just take a moment just to briefly but unmistakably raise your hand. Raise your hand up high over your head and just say, hey, just as you raise your hand, you're stamping this moment in your life and in the life of this church. And know, as you do, that we celebrate that with you. We honor that as your church family. And as you put your hands down, we put our hands together to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home. Nothing like it in the world.